This morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Jeremiah. We're in Jeremiah 29. We're going to read verses 1 through 14, and that's on page 1223. I think I beat Vic. This is a record. 1223. Beginning at verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen Mother the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried off into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. So not very long ago, I went out to dinner with an old friend. And as 
our evening kicked off. We did what normal people do, and we played catch-up, right? Like we talked about how our friends and family were doing and our vacations and our plans. It was a normal conversation, and everything was going really well. And at some point in our conversation, my friend asked me, Hey, how's work going? And I was so grateful that she asked that question because I had so many beautiful things to share about how the Lord had given me calling and equipping and he'd made a way for me to grow up into this calling and he'd made this opportunity for me to serve in this tremendous place called Gold Avenue Church. You might have heard of it. Anyway, so I was gushing on and on about the Lord's goodness and how he'd just blown me away with how good he'd been to me and the people that I'd met and the goodness that he'd provided me with. And as I went on and on and on, the gleam in my friend's eye started to dull. Her eyes started to dim and fall, and her face took on a streaky red glow as her cheeks started to flush with emotion, you know, and you can see it kind of rise up in someone. And her discomfort was so obvious that I literally stopped mid-sentence and I said, what is it? What's wrong? And my friend's response was unexpected. Oh, Jalisa, she said, I want to be happy for you. And really, I am. But I just can't understand why God won't bless me like he's blessed you. I so badly want to get into music to be a singer. I went to school for this, and no matter what happens, I just can't, I can't get anywhere. My friend went on to share story after story of the slam doors and the thanks but no thanks callbacks. Maybe God just doesn't love me like he loves you, she concluded. Maybe he's mad at me because I haven't been all gung-ho about him like you've been. Though I had many questions from my friend, and though her story is much more complicated than the bits that I'm sharing with you, her words stung me somewhere deep inside. And they stung because I could feel the pain behind them. Somewhere deep inside, my friend had begun to believe some really untrue things about God, about who he is, about how he works, about how he wanted to work with her, all because her life wasn't turning out quite the way she hoped it would in the timeline that she had really hoped for. Life wasn't turning out like Israel had expected or hoped for at all either in our passage this morning. A lot's happened to Israel since the last story that we heard about them. Because last week, as you remember, Marissa preached about this fear and frustration that Israel had experienced when they'd been called to take their promised land. God had instructed them to go to war with Canaan and to take out the sinful people. But Israel had quaked in the fear Of this task, and they'd struggled to comprehend the goodness that is God's presence that was promised to them as they went into His will. That His presence was sufficient in all things. And as we pick up with Israel this morning, though hundreds of years have passed, nothing has really changed. Enemies have attacked and been defeated, judges have led and died, kings from the line of David have been crowned and then succeeded one after the other. And due to the persistent unfaithfulness of Israel, the nation had literally been split into. And just as God had warned them would happen, if they were unfaithful 
enemies had come. And both halves of Israel had been carried off into exile in waves, one after the other. Israel still doesn't understand that God is their God and that they really are his people. The text that we read this morning is a portion of a letter that God wrote to his people through the prophet Jeremiah. It's addressed to the remaining elders, priests, prophets, and people that had been carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. See, when Nebuchadnezzar had stormed through Israel with his armies, he'd taken some of them with him to Babylon. He took artisans and people that would be helpful for leadership and for making his cities beautiful. While Jeremiah and others were allowed to remain in Jerusalem, in the holy city, in the temple where God's presence was dwelling. And this created an immediate division between those who it seemed God had loved enough to let stay in his city and those that he had rejected and allowed to be carried off into exile. And to make matters worse, of those that had been captured and carried off, not all of them had even survived. It was a hard journey from Jerusalem to Babylon, and this is why Jeremiah addresses his letter to the surviving elders. So really, Jeremiah is writing to a pretty small scrap of people. These aren't the ones who had been fortunate enough to stay in Jerusalem, to stay near the temple in the presence of the living God. These are the ones God had allowed to be hauled off to a foreign land, the ones who had been picked off and died as they crossed. They're the ones that are stuck in a place that isn't home, a place they don't want to be. And in the face of so much uncertainty for those who had been carried off into Babylon, and even those who remained in Jerusalem, false prophets had begun to itch the ears of the despairing nation. Throughout Jerusalem and Babylon, prophets claiming to hear from the Lord preached that God's wrath would not last long, that the glory of Israel would be restored and the captives would be brought back home in just a couple years. Everyone loves to hear a prophet preach what they want to hear, don't they? And so Jews in Jerusalem and Babylon had flocked to these false prophets to hear good news. They paid attention to their dreams and their thought processes, and they picked out what they thought might feed them with what they wanted to hear, and they brought them to those prophets to be confirmed and affirmed. When times are hard and our spirits are low, good news is easy to sell. Never mind if it's true or not. So the nation of Israel had lapped up lies and waited on the curb for God to pick them up in just a year or two. And so you can imagine what a shock and profound irritation this letter from Jeremiah would have been to those waiting in Babylon with their coats still on and their bags still packed, ready to go home. Build houses, says Jeremiah. Settle down. Get married, bear children, plant your gardens and harvest them. Those false prophets, they're wrong. Take your coat off. Sit a while. You're going to be here for 70 years. And as if this news weren't bad enough, Jeremiah has more to say. Seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. Ask God to bless Babylon. Because as it profits, prospers, so too will you. So not only are these people stuck in a foreign land that has decimated their nation, now they're being tasked with praying for their captors. 
It's atrocious to ask exiled people to pray for the prosperity of their persecutors. God anticipates Israel's frustration, and he comes to their aid. After 70 years, declares the Lord, I will come back to you, and I will fulfill my good promises. I'll bring you back to your promised land because I have good plans for you, plans not to harm you, and plans to give you a hope and a future. Sounds good to us now, but it must have sounded like a joke. I can't even begin to imagine the internal struggle, the anger, the rejection, and the bitterness that must have ensued for these exiles after such a bittersweet bite. You mean we're stuck here for 70 years? It's not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be in Israel. This isn't how I wanted my life to be. It's not how I wanted my children's lives to be. It's 70 years is not how I wanted my grandchildren's lives to be. How are we supposed to believe that God is good? God who let us be carried off, stuck us somewhere we don't want to be for 70 years. It must have been so hard in that moment to believe that God was still their God and that they were still somehow his people. To trust that these plans of his that included Babylon were somehow good and to not just completely shut down. But as the shock of Jeremiah's words started to sink in, I think Israel would have started to connect some dots. This group of exiles... They knew what God had told their father's generations before them. They knew that they were told that if they did not walk in God's ways, that there would be punishment. He told them. And they knew that generation after generation after generation, including theirs, had not kept their end of the bargain. And so they knew that they were living out the consequences that they were fully aware of. Certainly God was disappointed in them ashamed by them, and angry. Certainly, God had rejected them. You know, I don't know a single person who likes consequences. And I certainly don't know a single kid who likes to be put in time out. I think it's pretty fair to say that most children who get put in time out go through various phases of reaction. Parents, you can help me out and tell me if I've got this right or not. So the first is this angry indignation, right? They're just so mad that they can't get their way, that they can't do what they want to do. This is the mommy, you're so mean, and I'm so mad at you phase, right? Then comes the reactive, supercharged, looking for some kind of ally way out phase. And kids say things like, if grandma were here, she would let me do it. If the other parent were here, I wouldn't be in timeout. And though it might take some time, some kids make it to the next phase. It's the desired phase of realization, the phase of calming down and of seeing the logic of your point and of saying sorry and being corrected if needed. But for some kids, still another phase takes place. This is the phase of pouting and the phase of shame. It's the phase of wondering if they're really, truly loved. And they wonder if they've been cast aside because of their mistakes. Mommy, do you still love me? 
They wonder if they're really seen or heard or valued, and they begin to doubt their parents' love and may even start to believe that they've been rejected because of the naughty things that they did. And you know, I don't know that we as adults are very different when it comes to receiving correction from the Lord. No one likes to hear the word no. No one likes to hear not yet. Like the exiles in Babylon and like my friend whose music career just wasn't taking off, when we don't get the job, when someone else gets where we want to be first, when our hopes and plans fall through, when they take way longer than we ever expected, when our flaws are pointed out by the Lord or even by a spouse or a boss or a friend, When life is just hard, and it doesn't look like we wanted it to or the way that we expected it to go, we get angry. God, I wanted to do it this way. I wanted my life to look like this by now. Why won't you let me have it my way? Why do you make it so hard? Why would you even make me this way? And why does life have to be so difficult? We begin to doubt wherever or whoever that no or not yet came from. We start to think things like, that person never really saw me or heard me or loved me anyway. That place, they never really appreciated me anyway. Maybe I read the wrong passage. Maybe I heard God's voice wrong. Maybe I need to go somewhere else or find someone else. And out of our frustration at not hearing the answers that we want to hear, just like Israel visiting those false prophets and kids looking to grandma for an ally, we start to hunt for people and places that will tell us what we want to hear. So we back out. We apply elsewhere. We take another route and find our own way. We read an easier passage Or pretend we didn't hear that still small voice of the Lord urging us to dig a little deeper or to change our course. We do life our own way, on our own terms, and based on how we want it to go. For some of us, that next phase of realization does kick in. We start to see why the answer was no or not yet, and we see the imperfect timing or the invitation for growth, maybe how our motives were less than pure or the necessary development, we start to notice the goodness of God's plans and the paleness of ours in comparison. But for many of us, we find ourselves slowly slipping into that pouting shame phase, right? We start to think things like, man, there must be something wrong with me if I just can't get there. I'm so sinful and I'm such a mess. I just can't get it right. I'm not desirable. I'm not lovable. God must be so disappointed in me. He must be so angry with me. And he certainly rejected me. God obviously hasn't chosen me and he certainly doesn't love me. At least he doesn't love me like I see him love other people. And this is precisely what the exiles in Babylon were in danger of believing. 
But God was not about to just let them slip into pouting and shame and despair. He was still their God, and they were still his people. When 70 years are up, God had said, I will come for you, and I will bring you back home. In other words, when I told you repeatedly that there are consequences for your sins, but even your sins and the resulting consequences can never take away the promises that I've made to you. Pray for Babylon, the Lord had said. Pray for its peace and prosperity, and I will give it to them because I love you enough to give it to you. See, God was reminding Israel of their covenant identity. This is how it is, God had said. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, when you seek me, my favor, it goes with you. No matter what happens or where you are, I have made you to bear my goodness, even in exile. Don't worry, God went on. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you, even though this hurts. I have plans to give you hope and a future. Through this, you're going to learn to call on me. And you will come and you will pray to me and I will hear you. When you seek me with all of your heart, with all of who you are, I will be found by you. Some translations say I will make my presence manifest to you. In other words, I am not punishing you just for the sake of punishment. I'm not punishing you out of anger or revenge. I'm not allowing you to experience the natural consequences of your sin and living in broken world because I long for right relationship with you. I want to restore our relationship so that you seek me with all of you, so that I can be present with all of you, because this is what's best for you. I have such good plans and such good future for you but it is contingent or dependent upon us walking together. Even in Babylon, Israel's identity is still completely intact. God is still their God, and they are his people, and his favor still rests on them, and they are still given the opportunity to carry his goodness wherever they go. Despite their sins, despite the reality that they live in a broken world, Despite the consequences of those sins, God's promises still stand. He would bring them back to Jerusalem. He would bring them back to the land he promised them. And he would still offer them the fullness of their inheritance in this life and in the next. God's anger over Israel would not last. He had not rejected them. His plans for them were good. They weren't plans of harm, but of loving correction of restoration, plans of a bright future that was full of hope. Good parents don't put their kids in time out out of spite or anger. They don't punish their kids because they've completely given up on them and are rejecting them. Good parents punish children because they have hope. They have hope that their kids will learn and grow. They have hope that they'll receive correction and become better people. They have hope that they'll grow up into good, God-fearing adults and hope that the good relationship between parents and children will be restored 
that kids will listen to their parents because parents know what's best. Good parents don't correct out of anger. They correct out of love. They correct out of hope, not just for today's situation, but for tomorrow. And no matter what our earthly parents were like, God is the ultimate good parent. Sometimes life is just really hard. And sometimes those difficult and painful things are just the natural effect of sin in this world. We live in a broken place and bad things happen. But sometimes life is hard because God has higher hopes for us than we have for ourselves. He has hopes that depend on us being in right relationship with him. Because he is the way and the truth and the life. He is the giver of all good things. He is the way maker. He is the fount of every blessing. And he is not just concerned with today. He is hopeful for your calling in this earth and your presence with him in glory. Friends, his plans are so good. They're so much better than any that we could come up with ourselves. And because of that, God's good hopes for us will sometimes require some course correction. They might require some surrendering to his plans, his ideas, and his timing. They might require repentance. They might require some really deep character work that feels like pain in the midst of it. He might allow our relationships to flounder and our plans to fall through. He might allow some of our hopes to remain unfulfilled because we're living in some sin area of our life or because we've got things that he's working into place so that we can step out and so that the world is ready for when we step into what he has. God might allow natural consequences of sin to take place, not out of anger or vindication, but because sin is a one-way ticket to death that God doesn't want us to buy. God knows our sins, and he knows their consequences. He knows the big ones, and he knows the small ones. And he has so much better for us. He is our God, and we are his people. So God might speak to us through his word, through his Holy Spirit, to convict us of things. He might speak to us through a mentor or a colleague, a spouse or a sermon. He might even let us feel the weight and the impact of our sins and our flaws. Because he has hope. Because his plans are good. God may take things that we really love away. He might say no. He might say not yet. He might ask us to wait. He may ask us to repent. He may ask us to dig deep. He may even allow things to get pretty hard. But you know what's so profound about it all? No matter what, in all things, your identity in Christ remains intact. Just as God remained Israel's God and they remained his people, and just as a kid in timeout keeps his last name and the love of his mama, in Christ, our identity remains the same. His desire to be one with us remains the same. His plans for us and our eternal reward is still on the table. Even in seasons of consequence, seasons of waiting, seasons of questioning, and seasons of correcting, we're still offered forgiveness. We're still set free. We are still known. We are still loved. 
We are never abandoned. We are never alone. We are empowered and we are strengthened as we turn to him. We are heirs of his glorious kingdom that exists today and will come in fullness. And no matter what, his presence that holds us is still available. No matter what Babylon looks like, no matter how hard it is or what gets dug up inside of us in the process, no matter how long it takes or how hard it is to understand, God always has better and he always has tomorrow in mind. He always has peace for us and his best. God is always in pursuit of right relationship with us. Intimate, nothing in the way, nothing holding us back, relationship. That's why he sent Jesus to bridge the gap, the gap between himself and us that our sin has caused. God desires intimate, right relationship. This is our identity. We are pursued by God. This morning, as we worshiped and we reflected, we were on this theme of God's faithfulness. And as we were worshiping, my prayer was that God would point out the ways that he's been faithful throughout our lives. Kayleen even prayed that out for us, that we would see how God had been faithful And my prayer as we close is that God would bless us to recognize his radical pursuit of us in every area of our life. And that like Israel, we would be those who learn to seek him with our whole hearts. That we would pursue him wholeheartedly with the fervor that he pursues us with. So we're going to pray. And after we pray... The worship team is going to start our song of response. And that's a new song. It's a beautiful song. So listen to it. But I want to invite you to respond however the Lord is leading. I don't know if he's stirring things up in you. I don't know if he's changing direction in you. I don't know if you're receiving loving correction or if he's just drawing near to you. But wherever you are, I want to bless you to stay in that moment with the Lord. And so will you pray with me? God, I thank you that you're faithful. I thank you that you've always been faithful. And if some of us are in a spot where we're still questioning your faithfulness, Lord, I pray that you would draw near, that you would show us your faithfulness even in the hardest things. And Lord, as we... um, look at our circumstances and look to you. Lord, would you help us to walk in your ways? Would you bless us with the courage and the humility to surrender things to you, to give you our hopes and our dreams and our expectations, to give you our frustration and our resentment at how things are? Lord, and would you stir our hearts with faith to see just how good your plans are for us? Lord, would you give us glimpses and images of the hopeful future that you have for each one of us? Lord, and would you help us to be those who pursue you and who receive your manifest presence as we draw close to you? Amen.